ship will automatically destruct in T minus one minute. I will win the crowd. I will give them something they've never seen before. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. gentlemen welcome in to the duel of the greats podcast episode 10 we're on con man week this week so as you know from listening to the past nine episodes or at least i hope you've listened to the past nine episodes um you know what we do here we take one movie directed by steven spielberg and another movie directed by ridley scott that have some sort of thematic connection between the two we compare and contrast them amongst ourselves with different categories um and the particular theme for the week and then at the end, we decide which one was better. So this week, we're going to be looking at Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can versus Ridley Scott's Matchstick Men. So, guys, what what is your first experience with these movies? What, 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 do you, what, what do you remember most about the first time you kind of encountered both of these films? I actually have a first for our podcast, for our series. This is the first week that I saw both of these movies in theaters on their original release. Every other movie we've had, I was either too young or it came out before we were born or whatever, some combination, or I maybe saw one but didn't see the other when it was originally released. I saw both these in theaters. So Catch Me If You Can, uh, back in the day, my family, we used to go to movies on the evening of Christmas Day. That was our Christmas Day movie uh, in 2002, I think, is when this was released. And then months later, when Matchstick Men came out, I saw it uh, with some friends. I got dropped off by my parents at the movie theater, old old school, and um, we went in and we saw this movie, which my friends uh, weren't too keen on seeing because it's not something really marketed to like younger people. But I was kind of getting into my filmmaker phase and knew that I wanted to see it. So this is the first one that I. And I've seen them both again through the years, but this is the first week where I saw both of them theaters when they were released what about you steve um i think i actually saw matt or uh, catch me if you can with you on christmas day eve i couldn't remember because you yeah your family and your mom came to a yeah. lot of those as well and i couldn't remember if that was one of those years that you saw with us that was i'm pretty pretty sure because oh. i remember the the christmas themes sticking out can i have a, a side question real quick I, yeah I obviously know that you two are cousins but what's the relation here like parent one parent is a brother sister oh dad. yeah what, what's the my mom his dad gotcha okay siblings all right got uh, that out of the way continue yep we have paternal or well mater- my my maternal grandparents his paternal. dad is your uncle. yeah yes uncle chris and his aunt debbie is my mom so okay, that's the way Carson the other fun his dad is my uncle so that's first the cousins, main yeah. connection you were also pretty close and this is like a totally random thing. Uh, Steve is my only first cousin. My sister and I grew up with just one first cousin, and that was Steve. He's an only child. I've got relatives on the other side who didn't have any kids, so Steve was it. And we're the exact same age. We were pretty close growing up. Yeah, and but yeah, exactly. Like you said, we're only a couple of weeks apart, so all the milestones we all kind of did together. So it was pretty for, for, for uh, those pretty fun way to grow up. 
for those who have been waiting for that information for some weeks, I'm sorry it took us this long to get that full family detail. That does kind of yeah. seem like an episode one conversation. I know, right? <laughs> Glad we got that one out of the way. More Our than fans have been begging for it. <laughs> <laughs> so many, so many emails and and social media messages about somebody explain this. Oh, okay, wait, wait. All right, sorry, um, I didn't mean to cut you off, Steve, but I I had to know. Inquiring minds had to know. But well, continue. Now, now you know. We have all kinds of. Uh, shenanigans uh, and fun stories that we can tell um we told one off the air earlier it's um we're recording this right before the fourth of july and we won't go into details but we will give you all just a taste if you're curious you can send in more emails we sent our grand our poor grandfather into a korea flashback with some misplaced um and poorly thought out firework displays um <laughs> as he he dove to save our poor wheelchair bound grandma uh it was bad deal anyway everyone's we can laugh about it now everyone's <laughs> fine no one no, died man. it was fine so, <laughs> yeah so it's, it's all good oh uh, anyway um so yeah cash movie can i saw with uh you 20 2002 when it came out um matchstick man i don't remember i don't think i saw it with you it sounds like if you saw it with your friends this was around the time we were going to just about every movie um maybe it was more like 2003 and on going to just about every movie that came out um the new releases that week you know once you're in high school and you got wheels you got to find somewhere to go um i definitely saw it back then though when it came out i just don't quite remember exactly the circumstances but i um so that's my prior experience with it i really liked catch me if you can <clears throat> i've liked it every time i've seen it since it's grown on me matchstick man i have not seen since until this week and um I had high expectations for it. Um, I thought it was going to be one of these things where it's like, people have really slept on this movie because I really remembered liking it. I really, really liked it back when I first saw it. So that's where I'll leave it for now. Jeffrey, talk yeah, to so us. I, I saw neither of these movies in theaters. Um, and I, so Leonardo DiCaprio being in Catch Me If You Can, this was like, Catch Me If You Can, I think was kind of the first time that, at least for me, and I think the general public, like there might be some exceptions, right? But the first time I think the general public really began to spec respect Leonardo DiCaprio as like a legitimate actor beyond just like teen heartthrob, right? Because like, that's what he was up to that point. And, you know, my sisters, uh, they were a few years older than me. And they have, I have twin sisters. So when I say they're, they're both a few years older than me, they, they both are exactly the same age older than me. But, um, but, you know, they had the posters in the room, the Tiger Beats and the teen whatever magazines, you know, and then there's Leonardo DiCaprio, all these shots of him in, a, in the rain and like a soaked through shirt, you know, that they get from the and that's the kind of, you know, like Keanu Reeves and those people. That's the, what he was at the time. Nothing wrong with that. But, you know, for uh, me, let's see, you know, like Titanic. Right. I was 12 when that came out. And so I'm just like, oh, God, you know, I'm not going to. I don't like Leonardo DiCaprio. He's just this guy the girls fawn over, blah, 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 blah. And then, so I was still kind of in that phase at that time, even though I was older. Uh, but somehow or, or another, I actually ended up seeing Catch Me If You Can, I think a year or two after it came out. And I was like, holy crap, this movie's good. And uh, I was like, do I like Leonardo DiCaprio? No, maybe he's actually a good actor. And then after that, the hits just started pouring in, you know, because then it was like Gangs of New York and then you roll into like blood diamond and, and all those movies in the early 2000s where body of ice where he really uh um really started to kind of come into his own and start to get oscar nominations and everything and i was like okay yeah this guy's legit. um so 
similarly, I didn't have much interest in Matchstick Man at the time. Um, I remember being sort of, I wasn't, when I like, saw the trailers and stuff, I remember not being very sure on the tone of the movie from the trailer. And so I was like, I don't know about this movie. And I'm, the re- reviews, I think I remember, if I remember right, were kind of mixed. And um, it didn't, it seemed like, I wasn't, I wasn't as well averse in Ridley Scott's filmography back then as I am now. And he's released a lot of movies since then, of course, too. Um, but, you know, I just knew him as the alien Blade Runner guy. And at that time, really, I wasn't even big into the alien fandom. So um, it was just, I just kind of knew him as the alien Blade Runner guy. And I was like, this is weird that he's directing this movie. And so I was like, I don't know if this is going to be a good fit. And Nicolas Cage was just starting to sort of get into that Nicolas Cage as a meme of himself phase, I think, at this time. And so I was like, mm, I might pass on this. I really didn't see that until this week, until we watched it. Um, and so, yeah, that was my first experience was for this podcast. And that's part of the reason why I've really enjoyed doing this podcast with you guys is because there are some of these things that, like, I never said, like, I specifically don't want to see Matchstick Men, but it was always one that I was like, I never, I just had never gone out of my way to see for one reason yeah. or another. And now I did for this show, and I'm glad I did. Yeah, it's fun to be able to see some of these things that we may have missed. All right, so um, with that, we'll go, what are the, um, we'll break down the categories first, and then I think we'll, we'll give some interesting, some interesting tidbits about the movies. So, so Nate, what are the categories we're looking at for these two movies this week? So our categories each week, exploration of theme, visual storytelling, and characterization acting. Exploration of theme, we're going to look at uh, the effect of deceit and just conning people. It deals with con men. Both the movies deal with con men. Uh, the effect of deceit and conning people on that con man's psyche and how it maybe affects their friendships or familial relationships. Um, it actually affects kind of family relationships in both of these movies in sort of an interesting way, and we should probably have seen it. I would go watch it because there is definitely um, some stuff that kind of occurs at the end that we'll probably end up talking about. Um, for category two, visual storytelling, he struggled a little bit with this, but actually Steve was the one who came through with maybe talking about the idea of setting. Both of these movies are, are very indebted to their setting. Matchstick Men takes place in LA and very obviously so. There's several shots where they use the skyline of Los Angeles, whereas Catch Me If You Can, he's kind of bounding around the globe and there's lots of different sequences in different countries. And just kind of talking about how the directors utilize setting in their framework and what they're doing with those, um, uh, you know, how that affects the characters. And then finally, with characterization and acting, we have a scenario where we can talk about directing Oscar winners. Both of these movies uh, star people who at this point had been very acclaimed actors. Nicolas Cage had already won an Academy Award for uh, Leaving Las Vegas. And then Tom Hanks, of course, a very acclaimed actor. Um, Spielberg had already worked with him in Saving Private Ryan. And then, of course, Tom Hanks had won Best Actor twice for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. So that's going to be our three things that we are going to talk about this evening. Uh, But before that, uh, Steve, want to give us a little background info on these movies? Yeah, I'll do that and give you the the fun facts as I see it. Um, You know, something I just thought of. 
the the main leads, main male leads in these movies, you got the Oscar winners at the time they were filmed, which you just mentioned. But then DiCaprio later won one. And didn't Sam Rockwell win one as well? He did. He won. Or was it three billboards, uh, right? Three billboards, yeah. yeah. He won Best Supporting Actor, um, so, which he's like, we'll talk about him. He's like one of my favorite actors, even though he plays the same character in every movie. I love it. <laughs> hey, if you're good at what you do. Yeah, exactly. Um, he, he does it perfectly. <laughs> So, all right, fun facts for you. Catch Me If You Can is uh, obviously a Steven Spielberg movie. It was released in 2002. Fun fact number one, it was a super, super fast production. Now, I'm not a movie-making expert, so I can't tell you how fast this is, but by all accounts, uh, everything I read, uh, it was a whirlwind. Um, There were some differing dates, but it's either 52 or 56 days for the entire production, which maybe Nate can give us some background, but... Uh, they were often at up to three or four filming locations a day. There were over 140 filming locations for the whole movie. So if you just do the math on that, that's obviously pretty incredible. Um, and it, it just, I guess it wore a lot of them out, as you can imagine. Um, but it's pretty amazing that they were able to put together what they did in that amount of time. Fun fact number two, um, Steven Spielberg actually kind of wanted to do this movie because he, he filmed Minority Report right before this. Um, and he, he, I apparently kind of got into a, uh, a rhythm when he did, we talked earlier in the season about, um, as he was filming Schindler's List, he was editing Jurassic Park and he, he later said that he, he kind of likes the, the ability to have a quote breath of fresh air after one of these, these tougher movies, which in minority report, if you guys remember was, uh, fun, but also pretty horrific and a lot of violence. So, um, three. If you've read anything about this movie, then you know that the real Frank Abagnale um, was not only a con man, but just a complete liar. So almost all of his story is pretty much made up. Um, A lot of this is fabricated, and there's a book, Catch Me If You Can, on which the movie is based, and both are, quote, inspired by his life. Um, Very little of what you see in the movie or the book actually are things he did. He just lied throughout his life. But one in particular thing, one thing in particular that I thought was interesting, <clears throat> the real Abagnale never saw his dad again after he ran away from home. But Spielberg specifically wanted to have that in there. Um, he wanted to, if you see in the movie, obviously a big part of it is DiCaprio's character going back and continually trying to impress and get acceptance uh, and approval from his father. So this movie is very much about Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Go ahead. Say, that's like the most Spielberg thing ever. Right. Right. That, right. So, um, there's a lot of Steven Spielberg in this movie. Um, there's another, we can talk about it later, but he, he saw, uh, saw a lot of himself in the Abagnale character from when he was very first starting out directing, you know, ordering around all these guys that had been on studio lots for 30 years and he's just this fresh faced little shit. Uh, so anyway, um, it had a $52 million budget, made over $352 million worldwide, so clearly a commercial success. Uh, Roger Ebert um, really loved it. He's our, our resident uh, famous critic. Um, he didn't think it was, you know, groundbreaking, but uh, thought it was a, a very good film. Um, let's see here. It had two Oscar nominations, one for Christopher Walken, as Best Supporting Actor, and one for John Williams for score. Um, Christopher Walken actually didn't win the Oscar, but he won, he won a BAFTA. I didn't know that. He won a BAFTA for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. Did you guys know that? I didn't know he was an award-winning actor, but... Um, 
Might. He won an Oscar. I was just getting ready to say, am I putting my foot in my mouth? Did he win an Oscar for something? Else? What did he win an Oscar for? It was for the Deer Hunter, so it was like 1970. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Way back. Okay. I think um, the, our generation really knows Christopher Walken's like voice and everything. He was like, like yeah. he, he was I think like it was photo like, Nick Cage, right? Like he. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, really. Exactly. No, he was exactly like that's actually it's interesting that there we kind of could talk about both of them. He was a lot like he's a very respected actor in his day, and now he's almost kind of like a meme of himself that almost plays that up a little bit himself. The first thing he's I think of. Crying out loud. He's what. He was in Joe Dirt for crying out loud. Yeah, which yeah. I in that movie, but I think of him as the the you know the crazy um, headless horseman in Sleepy Hollow, and I think of the Pulp Fiction character with the the watch, uh, the smuggling watch. the watch. Um, that's mainly what I think about. It. Anyway, uh, and the more cowbell sketch. But anyway, oh, yeah. um, so Matchstick Men. Three fun facts. Two thousand three movie came out about a year later. Um, there. So I know for sure we can source that Robert Zemeckis of Back to the Future, Force Gump, Contact, Castaway fame was originally offered this movie to direct. Um, he wound up turning it down, but he is an executive producer on it. We saw some stuff, including on IMDb, that maybe Steven Spielberg was approached to direct this movie, but didn't take it. So that would obviously be a huge connection. We couldn't source that anywhere else. So, you know, who knows? But um, either way... Ridley Scott was not the first choice, as I think even Jeff pointed out in his intro. It the uh, the tone of it doesn't really seem like a Ridley Scott movie, um, but he did wind up directing it partially because his wife Giannina Fascio, I'm sure I butchered that, um, met some of the screenwriters, uh, a pair of brothers. I, I forgot their first names, the Griffin brothers. One of them actually wrote Ocean's Eleven. Um, met them at a cocktail party. And she just bumped into him and heard about this movie that they wanted to make, this script that they had. And I guess she pressured him um, to help make the movie. So she's listed as a co-producer, actually. That was fun fact number three. Not in the movie. Is she? No, she's in it. She's the bank teller. Was she? Yeah, she's in all of his movies. I'm pretty sure. Hmm. But she's definitely the bank teller. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I stand corrected. Um, well, now I gotta double check, but I'm I'm like 99.9 percent sure, because I remember thinking about it before I watched it. But that would be pretty funny if the one movie she has a, <laughs> a below the line credit, she's. I mean, it's Cooper. Anyway, um, number two, not bad fun fact. I found I actually kind of struggled finding fun facts about this. Um, there's not a lot out there about this movie, and the one of the really Scott. Uh, I have two books about him. One's biography, one's a set of interviews. The biography, the chapter about this movie is like four pages. So go figure. Anyway, they but him and the director, they specifically wanted to kind of show Roy, uh, Nicolas Cage's character, his psyche breaking down, you know, this disorder that he has. And uh, they wanted to show it with the camera, not just, you know, tell you that he had it or let Nicolas Cage's acting do it. So they used a lot of jump cuts and um, a lot of weird kind of, Camera thingies, that's what I'm going to call it. I think that's the technical term. Nate, back me up. Um, but maybe Nate can talk more about that. But they, they use the camera to really kind of show that he's... There's also some really harsh changes in visualization. So when they're sitting at the table and the woman opens the back sliding door and the cinematography turns almost like completely yellow and you see like all the bugs because he's afraid of the outdoors he's yeah. you know, that that's one of the you know that's one of the problems is that he can't stand the outdoors so everything inside is very blue and his carpet is blue 
and they've done that on purpose for like the color design and then typically when they're outdoors it's very yellow and you see it obviously very harshly in that one scene but yes. they just throughout the whole movie they kind of contrast it in those two ways cool so yeah I, I think they succeeded at that using the the camera to tell that story or to tell that aspect of his um his persona um it was a box office failure kind of a uh, 62 million dollar budget it made 65 million worldwide so technically a success but you know nobody's getting rich off that um it had kind of mixed reviews critically generally favorable but um a lot of people didn't like parts of it our our favorite Roger Ebert he loved the thing four out of four stars uh there's a quote this is on wikipedia but it's sourced it says he described the movie as quote so absorbing that whenever it cuts away from the plot there's another better plot to cut to um I don't know that I watched the same movie that he did, but uh, anyway, um, others, other people thought it was too sentimental uh, at certain parts, which is kind of an interesting criticism, except for one huge part um, that we'll talk about later. I don't know why I'm I'm being cagey. The spoiler warnings have have been given, I believe, by Nate. There, uh, the ending is what a lot of people didn't like. They thought that it was kind of a tack on um, that, you know. Basically, it's a happy ending, uh, and it, maybe it shouldn't have been. Anyway, uh, awards. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. I think no, no, also no. part of the problem that people had was in the book that it's based on. It doesn't have that happy ending. He just kind of oh. kind of gets conned at the end, and that's the end of the that's book. That's the, the end of the book. Okay. And I've not read. I've not read the book, but I know that was a lot of people's complaint. And then they very clearly do this hollywood thing where he's like you know he has the happy wife who's pregnant at the end and it's clearly that the audience was going to feel so bad for this guy after this whole big long con that he's been the victim of that and he didn't realize it so i think it's also the the very particular difference from the book that people have an issue with as well no that's got to be it that's perfect uh that's great background because one of the reviewers i can't remember his name i think he wrote for the san francisco chronicle um I don't know why it sticks out, but whatever he said, he he felt like that that very final part that you're talking about that was added um, was added because of a test audience, you know, not liking the basically the ending of the book. He, that was his speculation. To be clear, that's not we don't know if that actually happened, but that that really makes sense after you said that. So, um, so yeah, we you got maybe like two and a half fun facts on that one, but um, it didn't win any awards as far as I can tell. Uh, it's kind of just a it came and went. Um, so there you go. All right. So with that, we'll jump into first category for the week. So we're talking about theme here. Okay. Theme for the week, con man week. And as Nate described earlier, to further elaborate on that, you know, we want to talk about um, the effect of deceit and calling people on the con man's own psyche, the, the, the effect that it has on their family, you know, and, and then, if if and when you know it was a big plot point in Matchstick Men about quitting the the life, if you will. So so what does that what does that mean for a con man? So um, well, with starting there, let's. I mean, what when you think when you guys think about this theme and those particular aspects of that theme, what do you think? Which movie captured it better in your eyes? Nate, why don't, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Well, they do it a little bit differently because Catch Me If You Can, what is happening there, the deceit is, the 
nature of him being a con man affects his relationship with his parents, his mother and father. And the whole point of Catch Me If You Can is that he's very young. He's you know supposed to be this very, very young person. Whereas in Matchstick Men, it is more about uh, how it has affected his personal relationships, this supposed relationship he was in with a woman, and then this relationship that he has with a person who he believes is his daughter who re-enters his life. So I think it handles it uh, a little bit differently. Um, and we'll probably get a little bit into this. I, I almost kind of appreciated Matchstick Men, how it did it a little bit more, only because... Maybe this is a case of Spielberg just being a little too Spielberg, but the returning to the father over and over again um, really is a very, you know, very heavy Spielberg tone that when you learn that that's just completely made up, it does kind of make sense that Spielberg would add that in. Um, I will also say, and we'll maybe get into this a little bit more, um, when it talks about the family unit, there is a, that Spielberg treatment of women that we have addressed uh, a couple times. Um, I read, you know, and I've read a little bit about this movie and I've liked the movie Catch Me If You Can for a long time. Uh, you know, another thing that's worth noting is that like um, his mom, Frank Abagnale's mom, never remarried and didn't have any other kids. So this notion that this woman like cheated on the guy's dad and then goes off and finds this new family and there's this very pivotal scene where the Frank Abagnale character goes up to a house. Interesting, by the way, the same house used in the, the Father of the Bride movies. I read that in the trivia. Um, goes up to the house, and there's like a little girl there, and he says, where's your mom? And the little girl points, and it's like, it's his mom. Like this, I don't know. The fact that that's just added in, that that's entirely an invention of Spielberg and the screenwriter, kind of makes me start to think about that treatment of women again, of like the only, you know, these roles that they serve. So for me, even though Matchstick Men, the whole father-daughter thing, in the end is itself a con, I liked those scenes a little bit more, and I felt like it was a little bit more effective uh, in Matchstick Men. But I don't know. What, what do you guys think? I wanted to just piggyback off what you were talking about the the fact that the the mother in this um is clearly, you know, she's she's cheating on him and then winds up marrying uh, James Brolin, I think, right? Um anyway, I this is the first time I've seen the movie since I saw The Fablemans. And there's obviously, you know, that's his basically autobiographical um uh movie and he the the family friend winds up him and the mother, you know, run away um, and cheat on the dad and all that. And there's kind of a similar scene where the mother is basically saying to the the kid who has discovered the infidelity, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna say anything, right? And I was struck by how similar that that felt to the Fablemans. I'm like, this is totally coming from his personal life. I mean, this isn't just I made had... up. I had completely forgotten about that moment in the Fablemans, and you're right. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. And catch me if you can. She almost like bribes him. Yeah. Oh, here's some money. Like, go buy some right. records. And but like, oh man. Okay. Yeah. It's very similar. I, that's a great reminder. Yeah. It was kind of spooky when I watched it again. Um. Yeah. I, so one thing, stepping back about these movies, it's this is kind of off theme. I'm gonna come back to it, but. I just thought it was very, very interesting that, you know, the movie is about con men who they're conning their mark, right? But the movies themselves 
um, when, you know, about con men or uh, a scam or something like that, they often will con the audience. And we have two very different directions uh, with these movies. Catch Me If You Can literally lays out the con, you know, everything Frank Abagnale is going to do within the first, like, two minutes of the movie, like, via voiceover and all this stuff. So you, you know, you know what's going to happen, basically. There's no pulling the wool over your eyes with the audience. It's all about the characters. Um, Matchstick Men, on the other hand, we don't even know what the big con is for the movie until literally, like, the last two minutes of the movie. Um, or however long it is. Uh, so to me, and this is how I think this kind of ties in with the theme. To me, when if the question is, what is being a con man and you know deceiving people, what does this do to you? What does it do to your psyche? I feel like just, but from a just de facto point of view of where the movies are, what we're looking at here, Catch Me If You Can is better at that because we're looking at who the characters are, you know, we're not trying to puzzle out what's the scan here, what's or what's the play, you know? Whereas Matchstick Man the whole damn time, and I saw it 15, 20 years ago, whatever, and I've, I'd forgotten what the big twist was, actually. The whole time, I'm like, what is the con here? What I couldn't even figure out really what they were trying to do at first, but then I was like, what is the movie trying to do? What is the con that it's going to pull? Um, And so, I, you know, I was obviously, I'm seeing the physical manifestations of this deceit, what it's doing to Nick Cage, obviously. Um, but the whole time in the back of my head, I'm still thinking, what, what do I need to be looking out for here? You know, am I reading too much in this, et cetera. Whereas catch me if you can, I just was able to sit and say, okay, this, I can take these characters as they are and not try to read anything else into it and just appreciate what they're going through. And it really struck me. Some of the things, um, DiCaprio was able to do, um, and just, you can see how it's just eating him up. He's proud and excited because he's a kid and he's pulling this shit off but he wants to be caught because this whole thing is just a house of cards and like he knows that it's just not sustainable and it's killing him he basically wants uh Hanratty to fucking arrest him in that first scene when they meet each other in the hotel um i wrote it down i can't remember exactly what happens but i'm like he's basically like just take me in um but Henry doesn't pick up that it's actually him and so then, of course, 30 more years or however long uh, in this, this guy's life takes place. But anyway, getting off track a little bit. So for that reason alone, I think my vote is catch me if you can on this one. Because we can just sit there and actually look at the characters and see how, how their feelings uh, and their actions are, are actually unfolding. Instead of trying to puzzle out what's happening in the actual, um, um, you know double cross or deceit or whatever uh, in the movie itself. Did any of that make sense? <laughs> I feel like I rambled a bit. I think you also, um, you know, to the point that you're making, the scenes uh, where they, they talk on the on the phone on Christmas are really good. Um, and I remember that specific scene. By the way, Catch Me If You Can, total aside, has a fantastic trailer. My all-time favorite trailers. Um, it uses the song uh, by uh, Bobby Darren, Don't Rain on My Parade, and it's just it's such a great trailer. If you ever get a chance to just YouTube it, it's great. But it uses that scene in the trailer where he, you know, handwriting character Tom Hanks starts to laugh on the phone. And he goes, no, I, I know why you called me. You, you have no one else to call. And then DiCaprio hangs up the phone on the other end real hard. Um, so, no, I think that's a I, I think that's the point that you're kind of making is that yeah, it kind of exactly it, it, pro, it probes into those details a little bit better. So 
So I, I understood the point you were trying to make, but I am going to completely disagree with it. Um, so you got suckered I, in by Ridley Scott's jump cuts. Well, I think so. I, I, I actually was going to bring up the point that you did as well about how with Catch Me If You Can, you can take everything at face value as you're watching it and you're going to get the most out of it. Matchstick Men is a movie where because of the twist at the end, um, it's almost like, OK, you need to immediately rewatch it. What what didn't I catch? Because I remember as we were going through as, as I'm watching it. Uh, the whole time I'm thinking the relation that the daughter is acting a little strange. Like I know she's supposed to be like off and coming from this broken home in this whole situation, but it, like, it was almost like this sort of weirdly flirtatious thing. And I'm like, this is your dad. It's really strange. But then when you get to the end, you find out she's not his daughter. It totally makes sense. Right. And so you have to take that whole movie together, but you can take any scene, any one of the individual cons of catch me if you can and look at what Frank Abagnale did. And, and you can be like, okay, I get it. I, it. Everything is clear on there. But I think the, in terms of like the family aspects of matchstick men and the um, getting into Nick Cage, Roy's psyche, right? I, I think it, it made more thematic sense than how Frank Abagnale's situation was done, especially when you bring into the, the the fact that Spielberg just made up all these interactions with the father and everything. Like, I think a big aspect of, of this, one of the things that we, uh, one of the things I actually wrote down watching Matchstick Men is, you know, with, with con men, they're always sort of alone, right? They, they've, they've run away, their family has, has pushed them out, et cetera. Some way or another, they've, they've, they've found their way away from their family. And so then they kind of create their own with these circle of con men, right? But with Frank Abagnale, he doesn't, really, he doesn't really do that. He doesn't have a partner. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't. And like, there's, there's this resentment in, uh, towards his family, but it's all placed at the mother. Nate, you're talking about this, right? It's it's all placed at the mother because she um, cheated on 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 his dad and ran away and started this other family, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it was very clear that his dad was the first con man he ever saw, right? Like they, they did the trick with the necklace. Yeah, he learned from him. <laughs> exactly. So So he learned how to be a con man from his dad. His dad was the one who sabotaged that marriage and he was never able to realize that. So the fact that he kept coming back to his dad and he kept going, like, it just didn't make any thematic sense for him to, maybe this is trying to illustrate a blind spot that he had because of his dad. But at the same time, it just, I'm like, okay, why do you have this, you're a con man, you can see all this stuff so clearly, but you can't see that your dad torpedoed his own marriage because he was terrible with money and put them into a, a situation that, his wife felt she had no way out of right so but he keeps coming back to this his dad as this this sort of hero and maybe that's meant to show how how off base he was and why he ends up being a con man i suppose i could i could read that into it but uh, you know he he then just kind of goes on his own and there's no situation where anybody's teaching him all this stuff he just knows all this stuff right like micker i guess he he does have the situation in the um, where he's asking the lady at the bank, like, what's that machine with the Micker machine and all that stuff? Yeah. So there's, there's that See, where he kind of learns. I disagree on that because also there's the, you know, where he's interviewing the FBI agents. He's getting all kinds of details from them about, um, or excuse me, uh, not the FBI agents, uh, the airplane pilots. Uh, you know, he's posing as a reporter for the school paper. Sure. And he's yeah. getting all kinds of information from that. I think they, they set that up fairly well. 
but but he's 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 manufacturing all these different checks and he's doing all this i mean i guess but it's also like um i mean he he learned how to be a doctor by watching that one show on tv and he just i concur and and that's yeah. like that was a hilarious <laughs> scene it's really well done but but some of these cons are a little um, far-fetched yeah Which, and then there's of course the the one that's sort of the uh I don't know what you would call it, but they, they kind of allude to it half, you know, where he's like, how did you pass the bar in Louisiana? Um, Frank, tell me how you did it. And then eventually he finally tells him and he says, I studied for two weeks and I passed, which now that we know Frank Abingdale made all this shit up, I'm sure he made that up too, just so he could sound really smart. But <laughs> um, so I, I was curious about this being a lawyer. Um, Frank Abingdale said that it, again, no one, I think this has been disproven. I think this is all bullshit. He said the way he did it was, um, apparently back then they would tell you that what you got wrong, like if you failed and he failed twice and then, but they kept, you know, he would see what he got wrong. And so he was able to study and, and he got better and passed it a third time. I, who knows? I mean, I, I think the guy's a liar. I mean, I think that was proven. Um, I'm not trying to defame him. That's my understanding. I don't know the guy. There was uh, an article that just came out like a couple of weeks ago. Was there one? Where, yeah. Okay. About how. You know, not only was he a con man, but he made up how good of a con man he was. Right. That That's what seems to be the reporting. Um, anyway. Uh, this is probably a good time to interject. I just thought of this. My sister has actually met Frank Abagnale, the real speaking engagements. Uh, yeah. And so he, my sister used to work for Marriott Hotels and he checked in one time and she. She now, was, it, was she sure it was him? She was sure it was him. And, you know, like she had seen, you know, he has a little cameo in the movie Catch Me If You Can. And then she'd like seen other videos of him and she knew he was there for a speaking engagement. Um, it's actually funny because he talks about like financial literacy and, and things like that now. Um, but um, yeah, so she's actually met him. He did not come across as like a con man, but, you know, it is worth noting that she met him. And, you know, there you go. Wouldn't the best con man not come across as a con man? Yes, that's a good point. She said there was nothing shady about his money or how they exchanged money or anything. And it well, was he's just... so far removed from all that stuff now, and he's been yeah, exactly you know, quote unquote legitimate. Besides yeah. manufacturing all these stories, he's been a legitimate guy for for most of his life now. But actually, since Steve and I are, are in accounting and auditing field, you know, he does a lot of speaking engagements that are relevant to our field, and our boss has actually went to one. Oh, did he really? Yeah. We should go. We should do this ASAP and we can report back on this. Yeah. Um, but I believe it's like $10,000 for speaking. Never mind. We shouldn't go. <laughs> he makes a pretty good money. Well, we don't have to pay that to go see him. But that's oh, I see. That's his fee. Him. I got you. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, back to the, the, the point at hand, though. Um, I think I do give give it to Matt Schickman because I, I think the the journey that Nicolas Cage goes on I liked better and I thought was um, sort of more relevant to the story being told than how, how it went about for, for Frank Abagnale personally. Um, so we, we can all be wrong sometimes in our lives. It's fine. Yeah. Well, you know, or, or the majority can be right. And Steve can be wrong. That's (laughs) fine. That's totally fine. But um, so now category number two, visual storytelling. I can I can start off with this one. So first of all, I think it's really interesting. Both these uh, movies had sort of interesting, um, unique 
opening credits. Like Catch Me If You Can is one of the best, most unique opening credits maybe in film history, like besides the Star Wars scroll, maybe. I wrote but, that uh, down. I was like, is this the best Spielberg opening in any of the movies we've done so far? It has to be. It's, it's fantastic. Based on what you it's just so, said, it has to be. It's so well done. Uh, and the the um, the Matchstick Men one, it's, it's just kind of the standard. It's not like the little cartoon caricatures like Catch Me If You Can, but the all the the words kind of come in off to kind of slide in off the screen and they sort of bounce around and stuff. It's, it's a little, both of them are more unique than just your standard words appearing on screen and slowly fading in and out as they, as we pan over some sort of whatever. Um, so that just from a visual perspective, you're both kind of, both movies give you right from the start. Okay. This is something here. There's going to be some visual thing. And I, I think Nate, you mentioned it earlier talking about, the blue carpet and Nick Cage's apartment and matchstick man and everything. And, and the stark contrast in the colors inside and outside. And also you can see even inside, I think I, this is kind of similar to uh Thelma and Louise. I think where we're even inside as Nicholas Cage, as his journey goes along, um, Roy, his character, Roy, when he first meets, meets his daughter, Angela, and then um, they start to, increase their father-daughter bonding and everything it feels like even inside it becomes lighter than it was at the beginning and then he has a backslide moment and then it gets really really dark even inside you can see the light from the outside you know it's daytime but it's still dark inside you know similar so so there's a real specific visual contrast that matchstick men really does give and i think it's really effective for the character journey that roy is taking and then if catch me if you can um it is it is maybe sort of near the apex of the kind of Spielberg Kaminsky partnership brilliance that they have where it's just like everything was so well shot and so perfectly shot and you get a perfect sense of place whether you're in the cold depths of Russia or you're in you know flying Pan Am through LA or the, I'm sorry the Miami international airport where all the cops are trying to find him and it's hot outside and all this stuff like everywhere it's a perfect sense of place everything it looks very much like where they're where they're supposed to be um and it really adds that extra element of of what you of help of, of helping the characters kind of define where they are at that time and then when he gets involved in the he gets at the hospital and he gets involved in the with the amy adams character i can't remember her name now but um and gets into a serious sort of relationship with her. And then, you know, just the, that whole sequence, the Louisiana um, sort of milieu, if you will, like it's, it's, it's all so well done that, you know, I actually liked visually, I liked both of these movies for different reasons, but I do think I have to give the nod to catch me if you can on this one, just because, um, even though I do think it worked well for Matchstick Men, it was almost a little too on the nose, maybe, if there was a possible complaint there. Um, but with Catch Me If You Can, it's it's not only standard Spielberg brilliance, but I think in terms of you know period piece movie like this especially, I, I think he really just knocked it out of the park. I think this is one of his better looking, especially considering how non-flashy it is with special effects and stuff, I think it's one of his better looking movies. Nate, I, I really want to hear your thoughts too as the, the resident film expert i just want to hop in real quick because i have nothing to add from what you said jeff my thoughts are almost exactly the same except 
I think I give the nod to Ridley Scott and Matchstickman because it, it, it seems more unique. Um, and I think it does kind of fit the story that they're telling. And this is not fair to Yanis Kaminsky and Steven Spielberg, but I can't take it out of my brain. This is the first of one of these movies we've talked about where they kind of look, they start kind of looking the same, right? These, they all kind of have a similar look. This, Bridge of Spies, um, Terminal to some extent. Thank you. Um, you know, there's differences, but you know, they're all, they're kind of starting to look the same. Um, they're technically wonderful. Uh, and like you said, they capture the essence of where they're at. Great. But, um, you know, I think he's maybe a victim. They're victims of their own success a little bit in my mind, at least, but it's, you know, it's a personal preference. Um, so I agree with everything you said, except the, the final, final decision. I, I go with the other way. So tell I mean, us who's right. Nate. I, I think the, the, well, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think the color design in, in matchstick men is really great. The, the, the blue contrasting with the yellow and just how certain things pop, like the pills, uh, which are pink. I, think in fact i think i read they're just benadryl they look like benadryl that's like what they actually used to shoot the movie it's just a benadryl that he's taking um so like even the color of pills and like the little pill packets um kind of getting those sort of color those gradient things sort of pop out i i will definitely probably give it to catch me if you can though um this actually has a couple moments spielberg does really really well where we talk about and we've talked about this before so these spielberg is not known uh, for being a guy who's like a oneer, who who's going to have these really really long, elaborate single shot sequences, he does them in small increments a lot, and there are a couple of master masterful examples in this. Um, part where a he he's in the uh, the French prison at the beginning, and they set Abagnale on the uh, you know like on the bed, and they draw the curtain. They come over and they're washing their hands. And then it's all one shot and it it pans over and the door is swinging. And then the guy goes over and and rips the curtain back and he's gone. That's telling a whole little story right there in a single shot. Um, I think of the part where they break into the house and this is, they do this with John Williams. They kind of, it's, it's synced with John Williams score where these guys, the little FBI agents, they all have guns and it's just following their guns. So it like do, 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 do. And it follows one. And then another gun comes in the opposite direction. It starts to follow that gun. Um, I think there's just kind of a lot of things like that. Um, there was another one. Oh, oh, the part where he big, uh, the big thing at the airport where they're trying to catch him going through the airport and he's surrounded by, uh, all the flight attendants and he's hiding. Uh, they think they found the guy and they're like, there's a guy, he's in a, pi- he's in a pilot's uniform. He's over in this car. They go over to the car and he goes, oh, I'm, I'm here to like pick someone up. And he's holding the sign that says hand ratty. Okay. So he like, he got him. But in that same shot, it's all in one shot where the kid goes and gets the little sign. It's hand ratty. And then it tilts up and you see the plane flying out and you realize that he got out of the country to do those small little things and tell those stories uh, in those single shots. Uh, I think it's really, really cool. And I think it's definitely something that Spielberg has gotten a little bit better at as time has gone on. I do agree this is one of those Spielberg movies and it's like right at the beginning so I don't know if I can fault it for this. It is one of those movies where it kind of starts to feel like they all sort of start to look the same which has been prevalent this century and we've, we've talked about that. But 
I just think those little oneers and how he tells these small individual stories in single shots, uh, I think it's too good. The color design in Matchstick Men is great, but I think I, I'm going to give the nod to Catch Me If You Can with how the camera moves and how it tells a story in individual scenes. And this is a side note to visually, but audioly, 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 I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what, what you would use. But uh, it's interesting that with John Williams, right, they've partnered so many times. I don't know about you guys. I love John Williams, but I can always hear a little bit of John Williams, where if I don't know he has a score, I'll hear a little bit of something and it'll remind me of something else. And I'm like, oh, I bet that's John Williams, right? Like uh, first time I saw Harry Potter, right? I was never into the Harry Potter movies, but my daughter got into them. I started watching. I was like, I bet that's John Williams. I looked it up. Sure enough, it is, right? Um, But this movie is one of his most unique scores, I think I've heard. Catch me if you can. Like, I don't think... I can't recall a real point where I'm just like, oh, there it is. That's that John Williams bit right there. You know, this is, I'm sure there's something if I really listened hard, but um, this is one of his most unique scores. I think that's kind of kind of cool as well, but that's not part of the visual category. I'm the exact opposite, of course. But Well, but I mean, I think it kind of, like Nate pointed out, it, it dovetails so nicely with it, um, with the visual storytelling. I think it's worth, definitely worth mentioning. It's very playful, I feel like, mm-hmm. his score in this. Um, it, it contributes to this kind of, for someone actually heavy subject matter, you know, some of these things are pretty, pretty tough. It contributes to this kind of feeling of, you know, it's more of a lighthearted romp, which is, you know, one of the things a lot of people said about it. You know, it's not a quote, serious Spielberg movie. Right. Uh, so with that, on to the final bit. We've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but but the final part of, of characterization and and specifically their ability to direct these um uh, somewhat character actors to um, the, that have all won Oscars at this point. Not not at the point they were made. So as Steve mentioned, Nicolas Cage had won an Oscar. Tom Hanks had won two. Um, DiCaprio would go on to win in 2015 for The Revenant. And then uh, Sam Rockwell would win in 2019, I think it was, for Three Billboards. So they've since won Oscars. And they were both, I mean, DiCaprio was nominated multiple times uh, in between. And Sam Rockwell had been nominated a couple times as well, I believe. Uh, so, you know, lots of Oscar, um, lots of very good. I mean, Christopher Walken's won an Oscar. And so lots of lots of very good, well-respected, award-winning actors in these movies. And first on the characterization point specifically, um, I want to disagree with another thing you said, Steve, about how um, Abigail's character wants to get caught. I don't I didn't ever read it that way. I always read it that like like when he's handing him the the uh the the billfolds full of um ketchup bottle labels or whatever they are and um like I just think that's a cocky kid who knows who doesn't know enough to not be cocky and that's what he's just like check me on it call me on it cuz he knew if he would just run anyway, right? So so uh, I didn't I didn't think now, now the the phone call is a little yeah. bit different on Christmas. That, that is that's, that's what I was distinctly referred specifically referring to. Now I do think he gets lonely, mm-hmm. but I don't think he wants to be caught. Um, I, think I think he wants he, to be caught because he doesn't want to be lonely. He wants there he wants to have somebody in his life. Even right, if it is handwriting. That in his eyes, that loneliness is taken away by the fact that he always has somebody pursuing him. Because what did his family do, right? His mom left away and, and never looked back. His dad, he always had to come back to his dad, right? Hanratty's the first person to care about him, even if it's only about caring about wanting him to get in jail. 
it's the first person that's ever like had to wants to pursue him to to get to him right and so he wants that he wants someone to to want to in his eyes want to be with him right as opposed to he doesn't he doesn't actually want that to happen to the point where he gets caught because as soon as he gets caught he gets thrown in jail handwriting walks away he's never going to talk to him so that's why eventually in the movie, he ends up working with Hanratty, right? Because the he can either fly on the plane and, and leave and be alone for the rest of his life, or he can actually have this person who has developed somewhat of a a sentimentality towards him and you you know, as a father figure that he never truly had, because his father was not a good father, not a good dad. So um so there's that that's interesting. But then I I think the I think the so here's, I'm going to have, I think, Nate, you had talked about when we talked about the counselor, you talked about with, with Cameron Diaz, right? You can never not see Cameron Diaz, okay? And with Nicolas Cage, it, it, part of it sucks because in 2003, it wasn't what it is now. But Nicolas Cage is so very much Nicolas Cage. And he can't not be Nicolas Cage. Now, the problem is, so, like, he does all like the head motions and the herky jerky stuff and and he you know the eyes and and all that and and like he made that famous he won the oscar for leaving las vegas and that was kind of what he did right like there's i remember i remember the scene where he's uh he's trying to cash a check to go buy alcohol in the bank and he's just like he's got the shakes because he hasn't had he hasn't had his um alcohol in, in a while and and he's like acting all weird and it's like that was probably revelatory at the time i don't really remember enough about it to to remember what people were saying exactly um, but then obviously it became his thing, his shtick. And so that stuff has kind of worn on me and it's not necessarily the fault of this movie in 2003, but it's hard to like Steve, what you were saying, it's hard for me to unwind that from, from myself. Uh, and so some of that stuff, when he gets in there, I kind of like, this is a little too Nicholas cagey for me, but at the same time, like Nicolas Cage reveals why he won that Oscar, why he's such a good actor. And like, there was a moment, I God, I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was one of the, um, the times where he like had to have, he had to rush into the um, therapist's office and talk to him about something. Cause he was breaking down and needed more medicine or whatever. And, and he's his, he, the therapist asked him about something about his, his, former girlfriend wife and and he uh they were married right yeah wife um so and he doesn't spaz out he just sort of calmly thinks for a minute and you can really see going through all these emotions on his face and there are these quiet moments that Nicolas Cage has in a lot of his movies if you've seen the movie Pig the entire movie is like this for Nicolas Cage and that entire movie like he was a a force in that movie he was very good and and those are the moments where I'm just like, man, you know, I get it. I get why he's that good of an actor. And then he just kind of, um, it was actually very much um, at the ending, right? The, the the scene that that everyone apparently hates, where where the the tacked on ending, where he meets um, Angela again, and he's very much under control himself. He doesn't seem like he's got as many of his issues now, and he's you know, he's a little bit more contemplative and he could easily blow up this girl's life just by saying a few things and he holds back, but those emotions are going through him and he's kind of fighting back and everything. And you can see it. And it's like that, that it's, even though the movie, it's actually funny because as I'm, as I was watching that, I was like, this is a very Spielberg ending for a really Scott movie. 
<laughs> but uh, it was, um, but at least in terms of the acting itself, I thought that that was good. So I think there was, even though some of those moments kind of put me off, I think Ridley Scott did a good job of reining it in. And I think it's really interesting. I didn't know that what you said earlier in the, at the beginning, Steve, about the uh, shooting schedule for the movie, how quick it was for Catch Me If You Can. Um, and that makes a lot of sense because I, I, one thing I know with Spielberg is he, he likes to do certain things to help with, with certain aspects of different movies. Like I know for any movie he has with kids, specifically, he, I remember him, I've heard him talk about this with E.T. He actually shot E.T. in sequence because he said that he thought for child actors, it made way more sense and helped them um, in their, their character's journey if they could actually play it out in real time as the script was written which maybe just maybe is why Spielberg is always so good at directing child actors. Um, but, but that's a big thing that he does. And he's done that with multiple movies that, that have heavily favor, uh, featured children actors. So the idea that he might've had a sped up um, shoot in order to sort of get this frenetic pace that the movie has and get the actors to feel that frenetic pace, like where are we going tomorrow? Where are we going to be? What's what no one knows. Everyone's kind of flying off the seat of their pants. I think that adds a lot to it and you can really see it come through in the acting. And, you know, I mentioned before that this was the first movie that I kind of stood up and said, okay, Leonardo DiCaprio, I see you, you've got some, some real talent there. And um, Tom Hanks, you know, you love Tom Hanks, who doesn't, but uh, this movie, I, I think he was good, but nothing special in terms of Tom Hanks movies, right? It's on par, but it wasn't anything that was like super great. The, the, the accent is uh, it's touchy but it you know it works and um so yeah this one this one is tougher in in terms of um I, I literally have not decided yet i was gonna wait to hear what you guys said because it's to me it's so tough as well so I, i'm very curious uh yeah, you had the comes, burden of going first to me it comes down to DiCaprio versus Nicolas Cage. And that's a little unfair because Nicolas Cage is older than DiCaprio was when the, when the movies were made. Um, and, you know, Nicolas Cage been around for, I mean, shoot, he was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which was made 20, 20 years before that uh, Matchstick Men was made. So it's, uh, man, it's tough. I hadn't really made up my mind and I was hoping as I started talking about it, I would, and I still haven't made up my mind. <laughs> but... Uh, let me can i throw you maybe a, a life preserver try and yeah throw me something here i i think christopher walken might be my my uh tiebreaker here because so we have what kind of three leads in each of them give or take you know obviously supporting actor is not really lead but um if you think of nicholas cage sam rockwell and allison loman versus leonardo dicaprio Tom Hanks and Christopher Walken, which triumvirate is better? Not that Allison Loman did a bad job, but um, you could almost replace Allison Loman with Amy Adams, right? Amy Adams had a pretty big role in Catch Me If You Can. That's, I don't know. She's not critical to the plot, whereas Allison Loman is. That's that's fair. That's fair. But maybe in in saying that, are you not also? And I'm going to get back into this, like. What you're saying is you're also talking about their treatment of women because every single woman in catch me if you can is either a mother breaking up a family 
or a dumb bimbo idiot. Like every single yeah. female character in Catch Me If You Can, that is what they are. Um, or, or, as or... Alison Lohman, I feel like the reason you're saying she's more integral to the plot is because like her character has more to her than just being one of those things. Has agency. Yes. I mean, his agency, she is, you know, and again, she's she's part of a con. So like there's a whole element of that that gets revealed at the end of the movie. Uh, There's still a little the the reason I think we feel like, oh, well, you know, you can't just replace her or whatever. You know, that's I. She is more integral to the plot because the the, her role is integral to this character's development. Yeah, I'm not saying that she, the actress, can't be replaced, but the character itself, it she's a main driver of the plot. Whereas in catch me if you can Amy Adams character, she's just a, she's a part of one of his cons. I mean, obviously it contributes she, to some of his character development, but I was, I was going to say that she served yeah. to, to help develop some of his character. Um, but, and those, and like Amy Adams and the woman who played Amy Adams mother are essentially the only two who aren't the sort of bimbo family breaker people, but, they're both completely subservient to the men in their lives and have very little agency. Like they even do the creepy thing where Martin Sheen calls her mother to her. Yeah. It's very, very Mike Pence. Yeah. Very Southern, (laughs) just sort of, no, not a thing. Um, Mm. But uh, I'm going, Christopher Walken to me tips the scales. He he's an Oscar winner, as I've always known. Um, (laughs) And he, I think he actually gives a very, you know, nuanced uh, portrayal of a guy that's his whole world falls apart, obviously. And, you know, it, it, he goes through a lot. His character does, you know, you can see him ruminating on his wartime experience and, you know, how did, how did this all fall apart when I was the guy that got hurt? How did, how did this happen to me? You know, and, and, you know, he, he wants to do well for his son. Anyway. If we're looking for something to break the tie, I feel like that his acting is more memorable than Allison Lohman's um, Angela. Or is that her name, Angela? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was her fake daughter name. What? Her fake name. Oh yeah. So, so that that's I'm gonna go with Academy if you can. Did that? I. That, I mean, I hang I on. Don't let Jeff Weasel out of this. He's got to okay, pick so, one too. He started. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break this down to the two most poignant scenes for the lead actors. Okay, so I think you've got DiCaprio when he goes to the house in the snow. He taps on the window, asks the girl where her mother is. Right, and then you've got the scene for Nicolas Cage when he finally breaks down, goes to his wife's apartment, and she says there was no baby. Right, and. I think I have to give the edge to Matchstick Men in that part because I think that scene from Nicolas Cage was more powerful than DiCaprio's reaction, personally. But so, yeah, that's tough. But that's where I'm going with it. I think that, so I mentioned this up front that, well, and Jeff, you said, you know, Nicolas Cage, it's so hard to separate him from like the Nick Cage that we know, like he's always wanting to steal the Declaration of Independence. And, he, you know, anytime you see him um, and that's just kind of who he is now to, to our generation. Um, so he's kind of playing this character that just sort of a version of a character that he plays in a lot of movies. I said up front that Sam Rockwell very much does that. He kind of almost plays the exact same character in every single movie. 
Something about those two, though, that they do, particularly Sam Rockwell, they just do it so well. I think I, I think the reason I'm going, this is a weird reasoning, but I think the reason I'm going to say Matchstick Men on this one is because the versions of those characters that they do so well, I think I just like those versions of those very common characters that they do better than what DiCaprio and Tom Hanks are doing in this particular movie. I will say about Leonardo DiCaprio, in general, I do like him more in these kind of roles. I have always struggled to see DiCaprio in the tough guy role. Like, he seems really miscast to me in something like Gangs of New York, then ironically what he won the Academy Award for, The Revenant. Um, I like him a lot more in when he's supposed to look a little bit prettier, something like this, something like The Aviator. Um, even something like Django Unchained, oh, where he's Aviator's supposed to be. Aviator is one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, Aviator is like, yeah, and that's oh my, my yeah, that's my favorite Scorsese movie. We can talk about that at some other point too. Even in Titanic, you know, when he's he's supposed to kind of look that way, I like him more in roles like that. Um, but for me, I think the these characters that Cage and Sam Rockwell are playing are just a little bit more interesting to me. And again, I'm admitting that they're kind of playing this trope that they sort of invented and came up with and just sort of done their whole career is really happened to, it's just personal preference i just i happen to well, like it a lot more in this movie dicaprio is such a striking strikingly good looking person that you cannot you can never remove that from his right it's like uh like charlize theron right she won the oscar for monster they literally caked her entire face with makeup so that you wouldn't realize it's charlize theron the entire time <laughs> you know so right. he's kind of that way uh so I, I i can definitely see what you're saying with that so decision time. Um, well, by count, it seems like by, if we go purely by category, you guys both have two for Matchstick Man, one for Catch Me If You Can, and I'm the opposite. So I guess do you I guys mean, does that does that drive with what you were thinking, Nate? Do you purely make your decision overall? based on the category wins, or is there? Some I have other... a very I have a very specific, and neither of you swayed me. I I said. Uh, I think it was before we were recording, I had said that this, I think, was the hardest week. I think these movies came out um, very close to, you know, almost at the exact same time. Both the directors were very experienced. They're working with very experienced actors. There's a, it's a very even playing field. I think, uh, if you, and I'll just go first this time, uh, I, I think that I actually will give the edge this week to Matchstick Men. A very specific reason why that I wondered if I, any of you would uh, counteract this or, or refute this in any way. I think that there are no unnecessary scenes in Matchstick Men. Um, I think that everything is leading up to something that makes sense. Whereas Catch Me If You Can, one, I hate to keep going back to this, the treatment of women kind of is starting to, I'm starting to see it more and it's starting to bug me a little bit. And then in particular, I think... Adding on to that, I think there's some really unnecessary moments in Catch Me If You Can. There is this sequence, and knowing Frank Avignale, like that it's probably complete bullshit anyway. There's this sequence with the actress uh, Jennifer Garner where they, <laughs> like, she prostitutes herself out for the night and he, like, writes her, you know, a bad check. And they, but, like, there's nothing about that moment. I mean, that's literally just this moment of, like, wouldn't it be cool if we got jennifer garner and her whole thing was that just she male fantasy to have, right 
the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, there, what if her whole deal was that she wants to have sex with Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> and, that, and that was it. That's all she, she wanted to do. He literally cast her because he saw her in Alias, and he's like, you want to part in the movie? That's literally it. Like, Alias was such a big deal right at this time. It was on TV, and I and I have nothing against Jennifer Garner. I think she's a really good actress. I, I mean, I literally think she was cast in this role, in this kind of this small film role of, like, maybe you could break into movies a little bit. It was like a small part in a Spielberg film. It just seems so ridiculous and out of place, and characterization in that to go along with how women are treated in this movie I just, for me, I give the edge to Matchstick Men just because they're, you know, you could say maybe there's flaws, but there's nothing unnecessary in it. Every scene is leading into the next scene. And I think Steve even pointed out, Roger Ebert had said in his review, like, every it's kind of these three subplots that are all sort of intertwined at the end, and you don't really realize that they're all coming together at the end. Everything just seems so necessary in that movie. And Catch Me If You Can... I really do like the movie and we say a lot about the visual storytelling. I think there's a lot to like here and a lot to study here. I just think that there are also some moments in the movie that are ridiculous and they don't belong and they don't add anything to the plot. And they frankly are at the expense of the depiction of women. They're always at the expense of the depiction of women and starting to see that more and it's starting to bug me more. What do you guys think? So then, Steve, by, are, do you go with Catch Me If You Can? I think so. <laughs> For two reasons. I I don't want to follow that up now. It's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pick the misogynist choice. I'll go with that one. Uh, I have no issue with the treatment of women. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was great. They only shut up. Yeah. Um, uh, a couple of reasons. One, first of all, it's crazy that I think this is the first Ridley Scott movie we've watched that has a happy ending. And this is maybe, is this the first Steven Spielberg movie we've watched that has, yeah, probably that has a not happy ending. I mean, yeah, he's, he's kind of working with is kind of maybe both. The war's over. We got him. The Nazis are gone, right? They're never coming back. But he's a war (laughs) now and he's leaving. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I'm uh, yeah. And saving private Ryan, obviously, you know, that's not a yeah, super happy like ending, that. but um, uplifting, I guess, maybe. There are uplifting there moments go. at the there end of those. Whereas to. this, I think any sort of uplifting feeling is, is hollow. And catch me if you can. Um, at the end. So, you know, I think that's interesting. And generally, I feel like I've... God, I'm so torn. I'm, I'm really torn on this, too. Because I have, I have more fun watching Catch Me If You Can. To me, it's a more entertaining movie. Matchstick Man, I was confused the whole time. And maybe I'm just an idiot. But, like, to me, it felt... I was like, what is the con? What is the point of this? And this Maybe this is just my hang-up, going back to the very beginning. You know, I'm trying to figure out what the con is the whole time. And because of that, it's distracting me from just enjoying and absorbing the movie. Um, question, question real quick? Yeah. About that. So, if... Is that because you had seen the movie first and you knew there was a big con, but you couldn't remember what it was? No, um, that's a good question. That's a very good question. I was watching it. I did not even think that there was going to be a big con at the end. I thought it was just going to. Yeah, let me I should be clear when I say the con, like um, 
towards the middle third and you know middle third and then the end yes that started playing but in the beginning i'm just trying to figure out what they're trying to do what is the main plot of the freaking movie like what is the big con that they're gonna pull and i it just i think i told you this at work the other day i'm like it just felt like vignettes in the life of these two criminals which can be a fine movie but i need some sort of plot uh for me you know and it it just felt like it was kind of treading water um at the beginning and really at the middle. Um, even once she shows up to me, I'm like, what? what is the play here with the Bruce M- McGill character? Is that his name? Uh, the the Mark? Uh, I can't uh, that remember. That sounds right. Anyway, it's like, I, I still don't even understand the whole concept of that heist. So maybe this is just me being too dumb <laughs> to like understand the, the details of the plot. But, but the one, I think the big reason that I'm going to go with Catch Me If You Can despite all its flaws that Nate pointed out. And I realized that I'm like, God damn, I totally forgot about the Jennifer Garner. <laughs> That's really, really problematic. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't feel like the ending of uh, the ending reveal of the big con in whatchamacallit, um, Masterstick Man, is earned. I feel like it's kind of one of these, at the end of the movie, ah, it was all a dream. Uh, I feel like they didn't seed it enough that this was his partner for however many years, like literally laying the longest con, like how many weeks or months did this go on? And he got how many people involved in this con? He got the Bruce McGill character, the daughter, the fake daughter, there's fake cops, there's fake police, there's fake psychiatrists. I was going to say there's a fake psychiatrist, yeah. And they all have very specific things that they have to have done to make this go. Like the psych Nick Cage had to ask the psychiatrist to call his ex-wife to get this information. Like to me, it's just too much of a hand wavy at the end. Oh, it was a con, uh, you know, we got him. Uh, it, it's, it's like the screenwriters are like, we, we really got to have this, you know, some sort of big third act reveal that changes everything. And I don't think they earned it. Um, I don't think they put enough, groundwork for me again maybe i'm an idiot and i just i'm not perceptive enough to pick up some of the things they put down but no we don't put we don't put ourselves down on this show okay i will say that it's i i almost agree a little bit i'm still staying with matchstick men but i think that actually if you can is probably more fun on your first watch Whereas Matchstick Men, knowing what you're going in, there's there's more things that you pick up on there's yeah. a there's a moment in matchstick men where he is believes he's with his daughter his 14 year old daughter and he's told her that he's a con man and he's going to show her like a little small time con he's going through all the steps and he says and for god's sakes whatever you do make sure the person you're conning isn't conning you yeah and there's kind of how that kind of comes back around in the end is sort of he's he's not realizing that exact and i i would have never caught that and i know i didn't catch that when i was a young man seeing that in theaters and it's probably just now watching it just now when i rewatched it last week for this podcast when i caught that i was like oh like okay that i see what they're setting up there um so i agree with you in part that probably catch me if you can is a little bit more fun and rewarding if you're watching this movie for the first time i think that's actually that's completely fair and i will say that in terms of um like the it's kind of like the Jurassic Park versus the Godfather angle, right? Like I I love both those movies. I would watch Jurassic Park 
by choice much more than I would watch The Godfather, even though I absolutely love The Godfather. It's one of my top five movies of all time. But just Jurassic Park is more fun. It's just a, it's just it's easier to watch without having like Godfather. You have to sit, you have to engage, right? Um, and I feel kind of way the same way with this, right? Catch me if you can. Like that movie's on TNT like every other day. I feel like so. You know, I've had plenty of times in my life where I've put that on and just kind of let it go go on in the background while I'm just chilling doing whatever. And uh, Matchstick Men, seeing it for the first time, it felt like a movie you definitely had to engage more with. And the the con at the end, I can definitely see where you're coming from that it didn't quite feel earned because they. I do think if if there's a a problem with the reveal, I, I do agree that they they probably didn't seed it enough. Um, at the same time, though, I did like the twist and the the ending, and I I liked the fact that because of what was revealed at the ending, it pulled the whole movie together in a satisfying way, even if it didn't feel exactly earned. Um, and the I do think it's it's funny that that it was the the happiest ending for um, <laughs> a Ridley Scott movie. Yeah, um, yeah, just that that felt really out of character. I, I mean, I, all things. Are, you know, all else being equal, I thought that scene was actually well done. It's just a question of whether or not it was necessary. Um, you know, you can debate on that. Uh, but I think ultimately, surprisingly surprising myself, I, I I do think I might go with Matchstick Men as well. And I will go with Matchstick Men. It's, it's interesting that because I came in thinking I was going to love, or I do love Catch Me If You Can. And I was like, I just can't imagine Matchstick Men. Um, and even as I'm watching Matchstick Man, I was like, I just don't think it. But the ending just kind of tied everything together and it completely flipped how I thought about everything and how I thought about the Angela character. And because initially I was kind of put off by I was like, this is this is such a weird depiction of a 14 year old girl. And it's like, oh, yeah, she's not. And they're playing that up in order as part of this con. And so hey. I was like, OK, it made a lot more sense that way. And it pulled it together enough for me that I was like, OK, I I can dig it. I can dig it. I, what I really loved about Matchstick Men, and kind of going back to like our original theme of you know how do you know ethics of being a con person and how this affects your relationships, I feel like it really brought it all together at the end in that final scene where encounters this woman who was pretending to be his daughter and could blow up her whole life and he chooses not to. She's walking out, she kind of stops and she, she turns around and she goes. Oh, did you want to know my name? And he just goes, I know your name. And there's this moment between them, and then she goes, thanks, Dad. There's this moment between them of, like, that's how they do it, is they almost have to, just to live with themselves, they kind of, this brief moment, have to maintain this illusion. They're father and daughter. That is getting into the, the psyche of a con person. Like, that's, in this moment, in this movie, that's how they do it. I love that moment. I and I that was when I did not again didn't pick up on that certainly the first time I watched it. I really learned to respect that little last sequence and that that last line of uh, dialogue between them and it, it just it meant more to me. Um as I've gotten a little bit older and just seen a little bit more how they are kind of navigating what they do and 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 how they do it. So that particular moment probably put Matchstick Men over catch me if you can for me as well. And I think for me, I kind of talked about this in the characterization section too, with with just the kind of most poignant scenes for both main characters. You know, I just that scene with with Nicolas Cage and his ex wife, and tell, she's telling him there was no baby and everything, and he realizes that not only had he been conned, but that he lost this new relationship that he thought he found. 
and this sort of piece of his old life to where, you know, there's this, this part of him that can be better. And it all came crashing down. And that was just a devastating scene. And um, I didn't like DiCaprio's scene where he, you know, sees the kid and he realizes his wife, his, his mom is completely gone forever and all, and all that, you know, it's, that was sad, but I didn't feel it was as devastating as the, the Nicolas Cage scene. And that's part, that's partly why, um, you know, I think it would catch me if you can is infinitely more rewatchable, I think, but just in terms of a choice for, for what we've laid out for the show, I, I do think it again, surprise myself going with the matchstick men. Are we tied up again? Tied mm-hmm. up. I promise we didn't plan it this way. Yeah, they really are, our <laughs> listeners are going to think that we planned it. There's yeah. no way they don't. They're episode, not going to think by that. The 10th episode, 5 to 5. Trust me, we're going to make it 5 <laughs> to 5. We're not doing this on purpose. We, we didn't even plan the order of the movies no, intentionally. We, we just kind of no, randomly. The first ones we came up with. Yeah. And because like, and, and it, you know, a lot of this, I just assumed Catch Me If You Can was going to win because I'd never seen Matchstick Men. But then here we are, right? And I mean, you know, I just I'm looking back through all the all the lists and everything. Yeah. And what, can I, you run through them again? Yeah. So week one was Duel versus Duelist and Ridley Scott won. Um, week two, Jaws versus Alien and Jaws won. Week three, Schindler's List versus Gladiator. We picked Schindler's List. Week four, 1941 versus The Counselor. We picked The Counselor. Week five, Jurassic Park versus Lost World and Prometheus. I'm sorry, Jurassic Park and the Lost World versus Prometheus and Alien Covenant. That was the Playing God week. We picked Prometheus, Alien Covenant. Week six, Minority Report, Blade Runner. We picked Minority Report. Week seven, Bridge of Spies, Body of Lies. We picked Bridge of Spies. Week eight, Sugarland Express, Thelma and Louise. We picked Thelma and Louise. Week nine, Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down. We picked Saving Private Ryan. And week 10, Catch Me If You Can, Matchstick Man. Here we are. So. <clears throat> Sorry, I accidentally hit mute on myself. Um, but there were so many of these that I hadn't, you know, Duel and Duelist, I hadn't seen those. Um, I hadn't seen 1941. I hadn't seen uh, Bridge of Spies or Body of Lies. You know, so some of these, like, I didn't even know when we were making these uh, making these categories, if I'd even be. So it's, I know it's hard to believe, but we we didn't plan it this way. Speaking of which, we, we can talk next about week, Jeff. next week. And next week is leadership week. Okay. So what we gotta come up with a catchier tag, don't we? Yeah, Maybe we will. In the in <laughs> just the, got a uh, whole time. degree in leadership, and I'm kind of just like done with it. So we gotta come up with something hey, this better. Was, than this that. was your category. So. <laughs> yeah, you uh, category, but. Uh, but what 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 leadership week? What could this possibly be? Well, we have Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, starring Daniel Day Lewis, and then Ridley Scott's American Gangster, starring Denzel Washington and his favorite, Russell Crowe. So, um, you know, it'll be comparing and contrasting Lincoln and his leadership style versus Denzel Washington and his leadership style. Obviously, very different types of leaders, the president of the United States versus, um, you know, a, a someone who leads a, a gangster, a gang, a crime syndicate, whatever you want to call it. But um, yeah, but there's still leadership styles to be had there. And that's what we'll talk about. And we'll also talk about coming up with a catchier name. <laughs> for next week 
So we'll have plenty uh, of time to think about it during the three hour runtime of American Gangster. Right. Oh my that's, God. That's true. But I don't think Lincoln is that much further behind either. So it's this not. Is this be, is definitely going to be the longest yeah, week. And I've I, seen I, both I, of them, but I definitely need yeah. to rewatch because I have not seen, um, seen either one in a while. Uh, but American Gangster has one of my favorite character actors, one of that guy's, uh, John Hawks. I love John Hawks. And he. He's fantastic, so I'll be excited to see him. He I plays can't like picture who that is he's like Russell Crowe's partner, I think. It's been so long since. I've oh seen yeah, him. that guy is really good. Yeah. Gosh, and what yeah, else is he? A bunch of stuff. He was in Deadwood. He's in all kinds of stuff. Yeah. He was in, uh, Winter's Bone. He was absolutely fantastic in that movie. So, if you're a John Hawks fan, maybe I'll start my own John Hawks podcast. We can do that. <laughs> not, not that's a topic for another day. But anyway, <laughs> next week. We'll be talking about Lincoln versus American Gangster. So be sure to tune in. Uh, until then, thank you all so much for listening. We really appreciate uh, appreciate it. And we will see you next week.